Philippians. Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning as we look together at verses 1 to 4. And while you're turning there, I just want to express my gratitude to you as a church this morning for allowing my family to be back in Texas, where we're from, for the last couple of weeks. And so thank you for the time away. Uh, and yet at the same time, one of the things that we were reminded of while we were away is how blessed we are to be part of this church and this church family. And so it is good to be back with you today. And it is my privilege and joy that you entrust me with this um, task of preaching God's word to you. So thank you very much for that church. Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to be. And I'll begin reading here in just a moment in verse 1. In his classic work, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis devotes an entire chapter to one particular sin. He entitles this chapter, The Great Sin. Lewis writes, There is one sin of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, or that they cannot keep their wits about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. But I have not, to my knowledge, think that I have ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. And so then, what might you ask, is this one sin, this great sin, as Lewis calls it? Well, Lewis says the essential vice, the great sin, is pride. He goes on to write, It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other sin. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. If you want to find out just how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. Pride is the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. And if you think you are not proud, Lewis writes, it means you are very proud indeed. What is the great sin? Lewis says it is pride. Pride is the root sin. Pride is the chief sin. It's the sin that was even before the garden when Satan fell. It's the sin that plunged humanity into despair and death there in the garden with Adam and Eve. And pride is destructive. It's a sin that destroys not only our lives individually, but it's also a sin that has the potential to destroy the church collectively. And here in Philippians chapter 2 this morning, church, the Apostle Paul is going to warn the Philippian believers of the dangers of pride. He's going to warn them of the destructive and divisive nature of pride in the church. However, at the same time, at the same time this morning, he's going to offer these believers the remedy for pride. And he does so this morning by exhorting them 
to walk in humility. And beloved, this morning, Paul's words to the Philippians are so timely. They are so helpful for us this morning as well, for, for Second Baptist Church, because it is pride that has the potential to destroy this church. And so I want you this morning to read these verses with me with our own awareness of this ever-present lurking enemy among us. Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. If you have your place there, I would invite you to stand with me as is our custom for the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he write its truth on our hearts. You can be seated this morning. Well, there he sat in prison. Perhaps about 10 or so years after he had planted this church. He loved this church. He cared deeply for this church. It was this church that brought him great joy to his heart, and now he writes to them because he is very concerned about this church. D.A. Carson says about the letter of Philippians that the church at Philippi could not have been more than 10 years old when the Apostle Paul writes to them. And in his letter, he perceives a variety of pressures lurking in the wings. Pressures that could damage this fledgling Christian community. Opposition from without and temptations from within. And it's here this morning, brothers and sisters, that I think we find the words of the Apostle Paul to be most appropriate. Because after all, none of us, I think, would deny, none of us would argue that our own church, too, has enemies. We, too, face opposition from outside the walls of this church. Just look at at the world around us today. However, it's just as true that you and I also face temptations from within these walls. Another enemy, the temptation in each of us toward pride, conceit, and selfish ambition. And this morning, as we continue our series on biblical community, this is an ever-present enemy that we must address. Several weeks ago, I shared with you that the vision of your elders is that Second Baptist Church would move in the direction of launching a small groups ministry. That we would be a church built around using small groups as ministry in this church. And one area we believe God is calling us to grow is in the area of our life together as a church. Our mutual care for one another. Our every member ministry within this church. And so, as we think about launching this ministry, I'm here to tell you this morning... That nothing will kill this ministry faster than pride. 
In fact, nothing will destroy a church, nothing will destroy a small group more quickly than pride. And so it's very important from the outset that we identify this enemy and we slay this enemy. And as Paul writes to the Philippians, he identifies this enemy that's lurking in their midst as well. Notice there in verse 1, Paul begins with the word, so, and In doing so, he draws our attention now to the previous paragraph as he resumes now the exhortation which he began back, notice, in chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul writes, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Those who've been saved by the gospel, those who've been redeemed by Christ, Those who are, as chapter 1, verse 7 says, partakers of grace are now, brothers and sisters, called to live a life worthy of the gospel. And this theme, living the gospel-worthy life, it it could really serve as the theme from, notice chapter 1, verse 27, all the way to chapter 2, verse 18. And Notice that the way in which Paul is going to exhort these Philippian believers to live a life worthy of the gospel is in their unity together as a church. Listen, one way in which you and I are able, by God's grace, to live a life worthy of the gospel, a gospel that we have graciously received and for which we are absolutely unworthy, One of the ways in which we can live a life worthy of the gospel is in our striving for unity with one another in the church. It is our corporate pursuit of unity that demonstrates a life worthy of the gospel. Back in chapter 1, notice in verse 27 through chapter 1, verse 30, the end of the chapter, this unity Paul's talking about was displayed in their ability to endure together in the face of persecution, opposition, unified in their suffering. Notice verse 27, standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, striving side by side. Then notice in chapter 2 verse 1, Paul, he now is going to turn his attention to a different threat. It's not an external threat any longer. It's not persecution or opposition from the outside world. No, now instead he sets his sights on an internal threat. A threat among these believers that would keep them from living a life worthy of the gospel. And what is this internal threat? Look there, chapter 2, verse 3. It is selfish ambition. Conceit. The internal threat that Paul perceives is pride. And so how's he going to exhort these believers to to slay pride, to, to kill pride and put it to death and strive for unity so that they might live lives worthy of the gospel? Well, first notice with me, number one, I want you to see this morning the exhortation to unity. The exhortation to unity, verse two. Verses one to four that they really form one main thought with one main exhortation, one main imperative. Notice it there in verse 2. Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
Paul's exhortation to the Philippian believers is to strive for unity. The church's unity is his main concern. He wants the church unified. And he, he wants them unified for the sake of the gospel. So that they might live lives worthy of the gospel. In fact, notice the unity language Paul uses to convey, that he conveys in these, these four phrases that he uses here. Notice verse 2. Being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. Notice the first and last there being nearly identical. He wants them one in mind. In fact, that phrase there, being of the same mind, it literally means to think the same thing. He wants them to think the same thing. And not only that, he doesn't stop there. Look, he says, having the same love. He wants them unified around a common love. And then being in full accord, which literally means to be joined in soul. So so notice here that Paul envisions a church being in one mind, one heart, one soul. He wants this church to be unified. Now let's be clear. Being of the same mind, having the one-mindness that Paul talks about here, Paul isn't saying that he wants them to think the same thing on every single issue. He's not exhorting them to be mindless robots who think exactly alike on every conceivable topic. That's not what he means here. No, rather, he wants them to be unified in their thinking about the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we are a diverse body. Did you know that? We're a diverse body. Which means that we all have differences. We have differences of opinions, We have differences in our preferences. We have differences in our politics. We have differences in our convictions. We have differences in how we would do or we would not do certain things, even in the church, and that's okay. That's understandable. That is even to be expected. However, what the Apostle Paul will not allow for, and frankly what God himself will not allow for, is a church that is disunified, that is divided on the gospel and the implications of the gospel for our life together in the church. He wants them unified about the main thing, the gospel. In fact, it would appear that Paul understands here that the greatest threat to this church, the the greatest enemy, it wasn't outside the church. It was actually within the church. Persecution wasn't their greatest threat. And he writes this from prison in Rome. No, the greatest threat to this church was disunity. It was division. And so he exhorts them, verse 2, have the same mind, same love, one accord, one mind. And might I add, might I add that for them to do so, for this church to live in the kind of Unity of mind that Paul's talking about here in verse 2 would complete his joy. Church, disunity and division will rob us of joy. It will rob this church of joy. It will rob your pastors of joy. 
It will rob you of joy. And I can say to you this morning, and what I've thought about over the last two weeks as I've thought about this sermon, let me say by way of encouragement, is that it is a joy to serve as one of your pastors. Thank you for making my job such a joy. This is the type of unity that he's exhorting them to here. But notice we skipped verse 1. In fact, we we skipped straight to the command in verse 2. But Paul, notice he doesn't begin with the command. No, in fact, notice in verse 1, Paul begins with an encouragement. In fact, he, he begins here with a reminder. Now, why? Well, it's because Paul understands that if the Philippians are going to pursue the kind of unity that he is calling them to here, then they will first need the encouragement to do so. Second, I want you to notice the encouragement toward unity. The encouragement toward unity there in verse 1. Notice there in verse 1, Paul, he doesn't begin with a command. He begins with an encouragement. He doesn't, he doesn't begin here by saying, okay, guys, just do it. Just, just be unified. Just get along. No, no. He begins by telling them why they should be unified. He, he encourages them by reminding them. And he does so, notice, by reminding them of objective theological truths of gospel realities, and by reminding them of their own experience of these realities. And so here's why they should strive for unity. Why why strive for unity? Well, notice verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Now note there in verse 1 that that word if, it it could be translated since or because. Paul isn't calling into question here their relationship with God or their experience of these things. He's not saying, okay, if you are a Christian, then do this. No, no, that's not what he's doing. Rather, he is reminding them of it. He is pointing them back to their conversion. So, so he, he is saying that it, 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 this if should cause these Philippian believers to reflect back on their own experience of salvation. He, he, he wants to encourage them by reminding them of what's true about them in the gospel. And so just note that before Paul ever lays out here in any detail the heart of this exhortation toward unity in verses 2 and 4, notice, notice first he wants to remind them of what took place upon their conversion. Which, by the way, church, it should serve only to encourage them to strive toward unity. And beloved, it should do the same for us. So just consider with me for a moment Each of these gloriously rich statements that are just packed full of rich gospel truth. Notice first, if there is any encouragement in Christ. If there is any encouragement in Christ. Verse 1, that phrase, in Christ, this would be Paul's favorite description of the Christian. It occurs 
over 200 times in Paul's letters. The Christian has been by faith united to Christ. And therefore, listen, every, every spiritual blessing that belongs to Christ becomes ours in Christ. All of the benefits that Christ has earned and achieved through his sinless life and his substitutionary death on the cross for our sins are now, listen, counted ours in him. And that glorious gospel truth this morning, it should be a great source of encouragement for you. Brother or sister in the room this morning, are you lacking encouragement? Are you in need of encouragement this morning? Let me encourage you to reflect this morning deeply on your union with Christ. If there is any encouragement in Christ. Second, Paul says, notice if there is any comfort or consolation from love. Now, whose love is he talking about here? Well, most likely this would be a reference to the love of God the Father. This is the Father's love. Listen, Christian, to contemplate the love of God the Father in Christ toward you, it should be a source of great comfort to your soul. Do you need comfort this morning? As those destined for hell, God in his great love, he chose us and redeemed us and forgave us and justified us and sanctifying us, and will glorify us. He's adopted us. He's delivered us from future wrath. And if you are lacking any comfort this morning, take consolation in the immeasurable riches of God's love for you in Christ. If there is any comfort from love. Third, if there is any participation in the Spirit. The Spirit here is, of course, the Holy Spirit. And Paul is reminding them here of their own experience of the Spirit. It was the person and work of the Spirit that opened their eyes. It was the person and work of the Spirit that revealed Christ to them, who regenerated them, who now indwells them and illumines their minds to the truth of God's Word and empowers them to live obediently to God. It is the Spirit that has now made them one with Christ. And because of the love of God the Father and uniting us to God the Son, we have participation now in God the Holy Spirit. If there is any participation in the Spirit. But finally, notice any affection and sympathy. You could say compassion. And note here that Paul is not calling on the Philippian believers to muster up some affection and sympathy. No. They are recipients of affection and sympathy. They they were those who experienced the divine affection and compassion of God. In fact, did you notice here? Did you notice that Paul is quite Trinitarian, isn't he? In Christ, love of the Father, participation of, in the Spirit. He reminds them and encourages them with the work of the Trinity in their salvation. Now why? Why does he remind them of these things? 
Well, why, why encourage them with this? How, how is this an encouragement to pursue unity in the church? Here's how. Because, beloved, this is what binds them together. They are one in Christ. They were adopted as sons and daughters, loved by the same Father. They experienced the same love. They together share in the same Spirit. They have been joined and united together in one body by the Trinitarian God Himself. And therefore, in light of these marvelous, glorious realities that are true about them, they are called then to pursue with greater unity one another in the church. This is how they are to live lives worthy of the gospel. They are to reflect in their life together in the church what is true about them in Christ, that they are one. They're to pursue unity. Second Baptist Church, listen. Verses 1 and 2 are the reminder to us this morning that if we are ever going to be unified as a church, if we are ever going to experience the kind of unity that Paul's calling us to here, if we're going to live lives worthy of the gospel and be of the same mind and have the same love and, and be in one accord, then it will take the work of divine grace to help us see and experience this unity we have together in a deeper way by experiencing more deeply these glorious realities that are true about us. Paul reminds him of grace. He encourages them with grace long before, long before he ever exhorts them to walk in grace. God's commands to us always flow from what he has done for us. These are gospel-fueled commands here. And it's a reminder to us this morning that this unity that Paul is describing, it's a supernatural work. It is a work, therefore, that is dependent upon God. Church, are we depending on God's grace to work this type of unity together in our church? And so then in verses 3 and 4, Paul takes this encouragement toward unity in verse 1. He takes this exhortation to pursue unity in verse 2. And now, notice, notice in verses 3 and 4, He applies it to their life together. And he reminds us here of the key to the kind of unity that he's describing in the church. What's the key to our unity together in the church? Well, third, I want you to notice with me the key to our unity. Verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, Do nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Wonderfully convicting verses, aren't they? And it reminds me personally It reminds me personally that there are times in preaching where I feel woefully inadequate. 
I feel woefully inadequate at times, not only because a particular text is difficult to preach, but I feel woefully inadequate because I am painfully aware, listen, I am painfully aware of my own inadequacies and what I am calling us to here. I see my own sin here. And thankfully, praise be to God, we are not dependent on my example of this. We are dependent upon the Spirit of God working through His Word to change us here. If verse 1 is Paul's encouragement, and in verse 2 is Paul's command, then notice in verses 3 and 4, Paul's going to give his application of this command. This command here to pursue unity. And so notice in verses 3 and 4 that we arrive now at the heart of what it is that was threatening the unity of this church, of the Philippian believers. And frankly, what it is that threatens the unity of this church. And we see that it is, as Lewis said, the great sin of pride. Pride was the internal threat to this local church. Look there, verse 3. Selfish ambition and conceit. It's the same thread, brothers and sisters, that is lurking in our midst and even in our hearts this morning in this very room. And so Second Baptist Church, just observe this enemy with us. Let's size up this enemy together. Look look there, verse 3. Paul writes, selfish ambition. Meaning someone who persistently seeks personal advantage or personal gain. This is the self-advancement ultimately in hopes of self-exaltation. New Testament scholar Moises Silva writes, in his commentary on Philippians, that the true obstacle to unity in the church is not the presence of legitimate differences of opinion in the church, but self-centeredness in the church. The enemy is self-centeredness. The enemy is selfish ambition. And verse 3, notice it's conceit. Some of your translations may say empty conceit. It's It's a compound word that's actually used only here in the New Testament. It's the adjective empty combined with the noun glory. So, so really, it literally means empty glory or vain glory, Me- meaning a, a highly exaggerated or inflated view of one's self which seeks only personal glory and recognition. So this is the enemy. It's, it's selfish ambition and it's empty conceit. Th- these were the internal threats facing these Philippian believers. John Calvin writes, these are two most dangerous pests for disturbing the peace of the church. And sadly, these are threats facing our own church as well. And might I add, might I add, that these also would be major threats to a healthy small group ministry as well. I'm going to say more about that in just a moment, but let me just say that selfish ambition and conceit are poison to a church. Frankly, they're poison to a small group as well. Here's why. Because the self-centered person, the conceited person, will focus only on how something benefits them. They're going to focus only on how something benefits them and not on how it benefits the group. And so that means that not only are they going to pursue their own self-interest, they're not going to think about how one's own involvement, 
how their own humble service, how their selfless participation in the group actually benefits the group as a whole. Pride, selfish ambition, conceit. Church, selfish ambition and conceit, they will destroy our unity. And so we have to take these threats very seriously. So what does Paul do to combat this enemy? Well, look there, verse 3. Notice he gives both a negative and a positive command. He says, don't do this, but instead do this. Notice first the negative command, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Flee self-centeredness. Avoid it at all costs. Run from anything that would in any way feed or foster attitudes of selfishness and pride toward one another in the church. Do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit. And so if you're anything like me, perhaps you're, you're, you're either thinking at this point, here's what you're thinking, here's what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, I'm not selfish and proud. To which Lewis would say, reveals just how selfish and proud you actually are. Or you're thinking, Pastor, I know I am. I know I'm proud. I know I'm selfish. So, how then do I begin to identify areas in my own heart and life where I am selfish and conceited? What what, what might be a good litmus test for discovering and discerning my own selfish and prideful tendencies? And beloved, thankfully, the Apostle Paul, he doesn't leave us to figure it out on our own. In fact, in fact, notice, notice down in verse 14, what Paul writes. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Parents love that verse, don't they? Do all things without grumbling or disputing, meaning without complaining or arguing, without murmuring or fighting. Doesn't this seem like it would be quite the parallel, or or might I say quite the contrast to verse 3? Notice verse 3, right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but verse 14, do all things without grumbling or complaining. And thus, if one wishes to discern the presence of selfishness and conceit in their own lives, let let, let me just suggest, let let me just suggest that you and I carefully study each and every time in our own lives where we complain and grumble. Let me just suggest that you and I discern each and every time in our own lives where we argue and dispute with one another. In our marriages, with our children, at our jobs, within the church. What are the things that you complain and fight about at home? What are the things that you complain about in this church and fight over in this church? Let me just suggest that you look there and I think you will find the roots of selfishness and pride. The attitudes of self-centeredness and self-exaltation and an inaccurate view of self. Brothers and sisters, 
These are our greatest threats. We are our own worst enemy. I am my own worst enemy. You and I are our own worst enemies in our marriages. You and I are our own worst enemies in this church. You and I are our own worst enemies at work and in parenting. These are the threats. And they're dangerous not only to our own spiritual well-being, but they're dangerous to this church and the unity of this church and ultimately to the glory of Christ in this church. Because in reality, if you think about it, selfish ambition and conceit, they, they are really forms of the worst kind of idolatry, aren't they? I mean, it is robbing God of what he alone is worthy of. It is ultimately doing what we're doing to contend for what God alone deserves. And if left unchecked, listen, it will destroy us. And therefore, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. However, it isn't enough to simply identify this enemy and alert ourselves to the threat of selfish ambition and conceit. No, no. How do, how do we actually combat this enemy? How do we fight it? What's the remedy for pride? Selfish ambition in our hearts and in our church. Well, notice Paul's positive command there. The end of verse 3. But, so note the contrast, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. What's the remedy to selfish ambition and conceit? Paul says we must be diligent to cultivate humility. Verse 3, in humility. Humility is the spiritual antidote to self-centeredness and pride. And it is the key, listen, it is the key to our unity in the church. Verse 3, Paul says we must cultivate humility. And note that humility, it was a distinctly Christian virtue. In fact, in the Greco-Roman world, humility was only used in a derogatory way. It was, it was used to, as a despised virtue. As one commentator wrote, they said, before the New Testament era, the word humility had a negative connotation. The adjective was frequently used to describe the mentality of a slave. It conveyed the ideas of being base, unfit, and of no amount. Hence, humility could not have been regarded by the pagan as a virtue to be sought after. And thus, in the first century, humility is seen as a weakness. It is completely, then, countercultural to what Paul is exhorting the Philippian audience to hear. And yet, notice there in verse 3, Paul says, the Christian is actually to cultivate humility. In fact, we could say that only the Christian is able to genuinely express humility. Because, why is that? Well, it's because humility is the fruit and effect of the gospel in a person's life. In other words, You can't truly express humility only if you have been transformed by the power of the gospel. You can't truly express it unless you have experienced the transforming effect of the gospel. Because listen, if you haven't been humbled by verse 1, if you haven't been humbled by what we saw in verse 1, you can't express humility toward another person. Because only the person who has 
been truly humbled by God's gracious work in salvation, expressed there in verse 1, is able to no longer walk into a room and think they're the most important person there. It doesn't happen. And so it might be helpful if we were to define humility. What do we mean when we say humility? Well, I think John Calvin was right when he wrote that any definition of humility, it must first begin with God. He says this in the Institutes, it is evident, it is evident that the man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has first contemplated the face of God. And then comes down after such contemplation to look into himself. In other words, Calvin is saying that humility is an honest assessment of myself in light of God. His holiness, my own sinfulness. Humility is an accurate self-evaluation in view of God. So what then does humility look like? Well, look there, verse 3. Paul says, But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So thus, humility, it is others-centered. Humility is primarily concerned about others. It's primarily concerned about the needs of others. It, it prefers others. It considers others. It esteems and values others. It prioritizes others. In fact, in verse 4, notice there that Paul gives a specific application of how we are to express humility toward one another in the church. Look what he says there in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, this is what humility looks like in the church. This is how we practically express humility toward one another in the church. Verse 3, we humbly count others more significant than ourselves by, verse 4, looking to their interests above our own. Oh, beloved, Paul is so wonderfully practical. I mean, his exhortation here in verse 3 has incredibly specific application in verse 4. How do I count others more significant than myself? Here's how. I pursue their interests in the church, not mine. And so I think it would only be fitting and most appropriate this morning in light of this text for, for us then to consider practically what Paul is exhorting us to here in this passage. And one very practical way I want to suggest that we can apply this passage is in the context of a small group's ministry. Now I recognize that there are myriads of ways to apply this text. And maybe perhaps the Spirit is bringing to light in your life ways in which you can apply this text. So I know this isn't the only one. This is just one. And my intention here, listen, it's not to beat a dead horse. My intention here is to put flesh on this thing. To see what this looks like. To live like this. So then, how might we apply this verse in the context of our church and specifically in the context of a small group's ministry? Notice verse 4. Let each of you, 
Stop right there, in case you didn't get it. Let each of you not only look to his own interests. Brothers and sisters who make up Second Baptist Church, this is an obligation for each one of us. Let each of you. This is something that should characterize us all. Each one of us is called to this. Each one of us must obey this. We are all commanded to actively be looking out for one another's interests. We are all commanded to be looking practically of how we can count one another as more significant than ourselves. Let each of you, and if this doesn't characterize every single one of us in the church, it's not going to characterize our church. Let each of you. And verse 4, notice Paul says, let each of you look Consider. Literally means scrutinize. Let each of you look to the interests of others. Meaning, this is deep. This requires looking. We must pay attention. We must pay careful and close attention to the needs and interests of others. In other words, if you are preoccupied with you, which, and, and your own interests, your own needs, which, by the way, is what Paul means in verse 4 when he says, not only to his own interests. Paul, Paul isn't saying that one is never to take a legitimate interest in themselves. Rather, what he's doing here is he's forbidding selfish preoccupation with your own interests. But if you're preoccupied with you, then guess what? You won't be looking. And if you're not looking, you won't be paying attention. And if you're not paying attention, you won't be able to know, you won't be able to observe, you won't be able to scrutinize, you won't be able to consider the interests of others. Which means, church, that looking to the interests of others, hear this, is a godly skill that must be cultivated. It's a spiritual habit that has to be formed in you. It is something that must be learned. It is something that must be developed because it's not our natural tendency, is it? Is it yours? It is our sinful disposition to selfishly be preoccupied with our own interests, right? Not to be focused on the interests and the needs of other people. And therefore, looking to the interests of others, it requires intentionality. It requires that we take an exerted effort. It requires careful contemplation of the interests of my fellow church members. Here's what it means. It means I show up to our church gatherings. I show up to a small group with the mindset of, how can I put the interests of other people above my own today? How can I put their needs and their interests above my own. It involves observing. It involves studying one another so that we know one another and we're aware of the needs and the interests of others. It means I learn 
to cultivate the art of listening well to other people. It involves perceiving and anticipating the needs of others. Ultimately, it means caring for and serving one another. And thus, the the implication is that we cannot begin to do this effectively if we don't know one another. If we're not intimately familiar with one another. Listen, if my only interaction with you is the hour that we sit together in this room on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings, then I'm not going to be aware of your interests and your needs. It means that there is really no context for me to humbly count you as more significant than me. There is really no space for me to look out for your interests and your needs above my own, right? Am I right? Which means we need a space. We need a context for this kind of thing to happen. We need smaller, informal gatherings where we move from sitting in rows to sitting in a circle so I can look at you in the eyes. Maybe uncomfortably at first, at first, but I can look at you in the eyes and I can begin to discern and see and scrutinize your interests and your needs so that I can put them before my own. We move from monologue to dialogue so that I know you and I know what you need and I can meet that need. And so let me just suggest two things for a healthy small group ministry. Very quickly, here they are. They're going to help us, I think, grow in unity and humility. Number one, one intentional way we can begin to foster greater unity in this church is by every member's participation in a small group. One way that we can better foster unity in this church is by every member of Second Baptist Church participating in a small group. Community doesn't happen automatically. And by the same token, unity won't happen automatically. In fact, it actually requires intentionality. It, it takes effort. Nor does unity happen simply because we attend the same church or we have so for 20 years. That doesn't mean unity. No, the kind of unity Paul's describing here in verse 2, being of the same mind, same love, full accord, one mind, it isn't automatic. It requires time. In this case, we're asking it requires your Sunday evening time. It requires energy. It requires commitment. It means reorienting your individual priorities. It means that it's going to require patience. It's going to require graciousness. It's going to require long-suffering. It's going to require love. It means actively setting aside my own preferences and opinions for the sake of other people. It means finding intentional times where I can seek to unite my heart, to unite my mind together with you around the gospel. And your active participation in a small group is one intentional way we believe that you can begin to greater pursue unity together in the church. And frankly, I think to say, I don't want any part of that. I don't have time for that. I'm not real interested in giving up my Sunday evenings for that. Hear this lovingly. I think it's quite selfish and proud. 
I might say even deadly. If there is no pursuit of these things, you're not going to drift towards unity. You're not going to drift towards humility. And thus to begin to count others more significant than yourself and to look for the interest of others, it's going to require your commitment. It's going to require reorienting your weekly priorities because you understand the importance of pursuing unity together in the church. Second, finally, one intentional way, there are others, one intentional way to flee selfish ambition and conceit in your life is by actively participating in a small group. Here's what I mean. Small groups have the ability to function as a gracious tool of God in your life for killing selfishness and pride in you. Here's what I mean. If you want to sever the root of pride in your heart, if you want to grow in humility, then I would encourage you to commit yourself to a small group. Because this is what's going to happen. You're going to begin to rub up against other people and their pride. What's going to happen is you're going to begin weekly to be challenged to esteem others and count others as more significant than yourself. Where you're being required to look to the interests of others. And, and let, me just, let me just encourage you to see if that doesn't have a sanctifying effect on your life. It will humble you, my friend. It will humble you and it will slay selfishness and pride in your heart and it will change you. It will change you. In their book, Transformational Community, Ed Stetzer and Eric Geiger, they note a Harvard study done that examines factors in a person's life that contribute to how and why people change. In the Harvard study, it revealed two prominent factors that contribute to radical change in someone's life. The first was tragedy. Tragedy has the power to drastically change a person. But the second was community. Here's what they write. Change occurs among other people. The findings of this study shouldn't surprise followers of Jesus, they write. The Lord has supernaturally ordained Christian community to mature his people. Far more important than changing habits, priorities, or behaviors is the transformation of the heart. Only Jesus has the power to transform us, and he uses others to nudge us along in our relationship with him. Biblical community, they write, grounded in the grace of God, is essential for the ongoing transformation of the heart. And brothers and sisters, I pray that by God's grace, we would be a church that would pursue actively this kind of humble unity together and that collectively we would begin to live lives worthy of the gospel. And, and just imagine if by the grace of God, we actually did this. I mean, imagine this church, if, if we were denying selfish ambition, if we were denying pride in our own interests, imagine if we spent our time looking for the interests of others, imagine the noticeable effect that would have on us. Oh my. And if you're anything like me, you come to that and you realize, wow, how far short do I fall? Of this, 
We see our sin and we recognize how proud we are and selfish we are. And like Paul, maybe we were crying out, Lord, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And it's at that moment the Apostle Paul turns our gaze heavenward to Jesus. Not only because he's the perfect example of humility, he's the perfect example of one who selflessly gave of himself, humbling himself to the point of death on a cross, looking out for our interests rather than his own. But the reason he points us here, I think, to Christ as well is because it's the reminder that it is only in him that we find our righteousness. It is only in him that we find the grace and forgiveness we need for every selfish action and every proud thought. It is only in him that we are enabled to live anything like this. And so it means that we end where we began. I want to read verse 5 to you. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. But taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so church, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, this is what we come to remember. We come to commune with Christ himself, the one who left the glories of heaven, the one who humbly came to bear our sorrow, sin, and shame, as we sang a moment ago, who was raised and is now seated at the right hand of God, exalted as Lord over all. And so we come this morning as we take the bread, as we take the cup, We come to reflect on what they represent. And I just want to encourage you in a moment as the elements are being passed to reflect on two things this morning. To reflect on your union with Christ and to reflect on your union with one another. To reflect on your union with Christ. To remind you that it is only by faith in him, being united to him, that all the blessings of the gospel are yours justification, sanctification, glorification, they are yours in Christ only because of your union.